0: Advent marks the four weeks that are leading up towards Christmas. It's already week two. Time's running out. If you're anything like me, I still have to do my shopping. I have done nothing useful yet in this month of December. My family are in despair. But preparations for Christmas often overwhelm Advent. There's just so many things going on. It gets buried beneath an avalanche of shopping for gifts, of travel planning, concert viewing, menu creating, home decorating. There's very little time. But Advent in itself is a gift. It is an opportunity for each of us to pause, slow down, think a little, to anticipate, to examine our own hearts, and to realign our lives with Jesus. We want to be ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We want to be ready to live the experience of Christ in us, the hope of glory. We want to be ready for his return when that happens. Advent becomes a gift to help us prepare. We've been exploring how God's light shines on us and through us, particularly in the words of the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah had anticipated and foretold the birth of a child with unusual names. Let me read the whole passage to you again. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied exultation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. As people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden. And the bar across their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor. You have broken as in the day of Midian. For all the boots of the trampling warriors. And all the garments rolled in blood. Shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us. A son given to us, authority rests on his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Great will be his authority and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We were reminding ourselves that Isaiah lived in a time of political upheaval where great powers were jostling for status. At the time this was written, Assyria had been the big noise, the empire of the day, but was soon to be eclipsed and taken over by Babylon. The provinces of Naphtali and Zebulon are in the north part of Israel, close to the Sea of Galilee, between there and the Mediterranean Sea. They had already been destroyed and people had moved away. And soon King Ahaz and the little kingdom of Judah surrounding Jerusalem would be overrun too. It was a dark time. But a light was coming that God said would shine on them. The promise was of a child who would come to be among them. This child with amazing names. There was a partial fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah's day. A child was born, a future king. You can read a little bit about the child in chapter 8. But it quickly becomes apparent that God is speaking through Isaiah to refer to someone greater. If you like, there was a temporary fulfillment in Isaiah's time. There was a new baby born, hope arrived, things changed a little bit. But the real fulfillment would be 700 years later when Jesus the Messiah would be born in that little town of Bethlehem. And that means Isaiah's words function a little bit like a telescope, I think. If you zoom in not too far, he can see the immediate future quite well. Something good is going to happen, at least for a little while. But if he used his telescope to see a little bit further, well, it's harder to see and not quite as clear. But he could partially see what God was promising, the awaited Messiah. Last weekend, we looked at the first name, Wonderful Counselor, and reminded ourselves about Jesus' wisdom, that he astonishes people with his capacity to see and think and imagine different things beyond the assumptions that people normally have. And we're reminding ourselves of how much we need his wisdom in our lives with the choices we face and the difficult situations we find ourselves in. We long to be captivated by his wonder. We ponder the wonder that God loved us. And that Jesus gave himself for us. And that he can change our lives completely. We thought about Jesus being an extraordinary teacher. Opening up to possibility things that people would have called impossible before. And we're asking a hard question. What's the impossible thing in my life? What's the impossible thing in your life? What if Jesus was to open a door of possibility for you today? We looked at Jesus' actions that were astonishing. His cousin John had sent messengers to figure out, are you really the Messiah, cuz? Like what's going on here? And Jesus' reply, just look at what's going on. The sick are healed, the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the immobile are up and moving around, hungry people are having a real big feast at a picnic at the beach. Jesus was changing things. He can do the impossible even for me or you. We looked at the ways in which Jesus is subversive too, challenging the assumptions, inverting power structures, turning the world upside down, and wondering, does my life need to be shaken upside down? Are there places in my life that I've tried to hide from him and that I need to let him shake into the open and change? And we talked about how Jesus involves us. Because he's recruiting for his new regime. He anticipates that his followers, the ones who sign on for this new regime, if you like, will be seen as troublemakers, upsetting the status quo in so many places. Change comes about as people who follow Jesus engaged by the world and the challenge that he has for his world as we become astonished at the wonder of God making everything brand new. It's why we talk about joining Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor. Today we come to the second name that Isaiah foretold, mighty God. And while we might say, well, okay, Jesus is God, not everybody gets that. They really don't. That's not quite how easy it is. You see, even if you look at the words in their original language, it could easily be translated God's hero, not mighty God. And to be really fair to the words that are written on the page, it could be that. In a sense that the child that was born, maybe the child in chapter 8, would become a great king. He would be their champion in battles to come. Because a good king, empowered by God, God's hero, could bring victory in battle. He could help them develop a thriving economy. The agriculture that was dying because of all that was going on could flourish back into life again. They'd have the resources they need. There could be justice for everybody in society. The new king could be bold and courageous and successful. He could be God's hero. But as we keep reading in Isaiah's book, we come to chapter 10. And in verse 21, we read these words. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. This reference really is quite clear that he's talking about the God in heaven, a God who does come as a child. And that's a paradox. The paradox of the almighty creator becoming a vulnerable human baby who can cry and do little else. The paradox of the creator God becoming helpless and vulnerable. And while we try to wrap our minds around that, and as Isaiah is trying to make his mind up and trying to make sense of it all too, I want us to listen to what the first followers of Jesus came to understand as they reflected on who Jesus is, John. One of his closest friends would write this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that came into being did so through him, and without him not one thing came into being. That's a big claim. Peter, the loudest of all Jesus' followers, wrote these words. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith as equally honorable as ours, Through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're beginning to talk about Jesus in a different way. Thomas, with all of his doubts that he's carried around with him for 2,000 years, as sometimes we poke fun at him. Thomas makes the unqualified confession about Jesus when he says, My Lord and my God. And Paul, the great missionary, would write to his friends in Colossians 2 and say, For in him, Jesus... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. They're telling us that Jesus was no ordinary baby. And regardless of how full an explanation anybody can give of what's going on, they're reminding us over and over that Jesus is the mighty God. Matthew in his gospel, his story of Jesus' life, he'd figured this out. He actually quotes from Isaiah chapter 9 in his own book. Let me read these words to you from Matthew chapter 4 verse 12. It says this. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. Land of Zebulon, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who have sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Did you recognize the names and phrases between the two books, Isaiah and Matthew? Zebulun, Naphtali, the road by the sea, across the Jordan? galilee of the gentiles one of the first things that i noticed that was different though is matthew says that the people were sitting in darkness isaiah has them walking around in the dark matthew's got them having a sit down here why would that be why has he got them sitting he changed the words i began to think about that and wondered is it because they become acclimatized and accustomed to the darkness They've just accepted it. This is the way things are. This is the way things will always be. Nothing's going to get any better for me. Is that what's going on? Because this certainly seems like a time and a place where darkness, despair, and gloom, and feeling God forsaken was commonplace. No one really cared about these people. Darkness can be terrifying. I remember my dad took me to a coal mine that was no longer in production several years ago, and it now turned into a bit of a sort of a living museum. You had to get helmets on with the little lights fitted and some other clothes on, and eventually they'd pop you in the cage, and you were lowered down the mine shaft. It was a long way down. We got to see how coal was extracted and to explore the systems and machinery down there. But at one point, we had the option to go to the oldest part of that particular mine. That part was from the time of both my grandfathers, who were coal miners, there was a big door that you had to open, but it was low down. You had to crawl in on your hands and knees to get in there. And the people that worked in those mines at that time did so on their hands and knees, chipping away at coal and loading it into carts for either children or little Shetland ponies, or at some point they had little railways to pull things back out again for them. At one point the guide asked us to do something in this little tiny corridor and turn off the lights. It was completely black. Darkness that I have never experienced in my life before. Not even your hand in front of your face. There was nothing to see. I can't imagine what that was like for my grandfather the day there was an explosion in that mine. And he was left there for weeks. It was terrifying. And darkness can be terrifying. And for God's people... At this time, even when Jesus was there, it felt as though the darkness was never going to end. It wasn't Assyria or Babylon anymore that was the big noise. It was Rome. And yes, God's people had come back to their land and they had houses to go to, but they were under foreign rule. Nobody doubted who was in charge. They had returned from exile, but they felt abandoned, abandoned by their God, as though he was nowhere to be found. And hope was vanishingly thin. You ever felt that way? I have. For many of us, it could be a health concern, financial challenges, relational difficulties. All sorts of things make life difficult for us. The loss of a loved one, trouble at work. You could figure out something that makes you feel, ugh. And it feels at times like darkness presses in around us. And squeezes us. We don't know where to go or what to do. If you feel that way, don't feel ashamed. There's no real reason to, because you're in good company. Many of the people around about you probably feel like that too. Darkness can be terrifying. Sometimes it does feel like God is nowhere to be found. But I want to remind you of this. It is in hard places like this that Jesus grew up and he shows up. It is in the hard place of darkness when God seems so far away that Jesus grew up as a boy and he continues to show up in our lives today. He goes to the darkest places. He's not scared of them. He's not avoiding you. He is literally here for you today. The darkness is shining. Darkness, the light is shining. Darkness has been pierced. The mighty God is here. Jesus said himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Mark in his gospel begins to show some examples of what that could look like of Jesus exercising this astonishing authority, bursting through the darkness, demonstrating how he is the mighty God. In Mark chapter 1, there's an amazing story of a man with an unclean spirit. Let me read to you what happens in there. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What's this? A new teaching? With authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus issues two commands. Be quiet and come out. This unclean spirit may not have wanted to leave, but had to obey. The people there watching it commented that even unclean spirits obey Jesus. So can I ask you to ponder for a minute? What is it that crushes your spirit at times? What is it that crushes your spirit at times? Because Jesus can set you free. He's the mighty God. In chapter 4, there's another story that's fascinating about Jesus' behavior. It's set on a lake. And it begins like this. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, his friends, Let's go across to the other side, there at the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was be already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And waking up, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be silent, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You'll notice in this story there are also two commands. Be still. Be silent. And Jesus, who has contained the forces of darkness, now contains the nighttime raging sea. The forces of nature are compelled to obey him, just as that unclean spirit was. Whatever it is that makes you afraid, whatever it is that threatens you, whatever it is that crushes you, Jesus can bring peace. The mighty God is here. Recognizing Jesus as mighty God, the gospel writers who wrote the stories of Jesus consistently present him as one with extraordinary power and ability and authority. He easily defeats his enemies. The promise of God to Isaiah is real. Verse 9 in Isaiah, we read these words, Great will be his authority and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David in his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forward, and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Except, and Jesus' power is not like Rome's power. It is not coercive, or exploitative, or manipulative. Jesus' power brings light and life. His power doesn't come from a gun or a rocket. It's neither abusive nor violent. It is power that is life-bringing, life-giving, and life-changing. Do you want to experience the power of the mighty God in your life today? Sometimes I don't feel that way. And yet God's power is working in you, working in me. You relate to that? I don't always feel strong or prepared or energized. Maybe that's because I'm looking for the wrong thing. Sometimes I guess I'm expecting Jesus to try to make me into the energizer bunny when actually he's doing something quite different. He has different plans for me. Sometimes I'm hoping he's making me rich. Not so much. Paul writes to his friends, In Philippians chapter two, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's not at work in us to make us buff or fit or smart or fast or wealthy or necessarily healthy. He is not at work in us to make us popular or well-spoken. His purpose is not to make my life easier. His good pleasure is to make me like Jesus. He's working in me to make me like Jesus. And sometimes that means life is not always going to be easy because sometimes I need to be stretched if I'm going to grow. And sometimes I'm going to have to learn more about generosity and forgiveness and faith or perhaps it's self-control or patience or kindness. Sometimes life transformation is hard and difficult. But God is at work in you. His power is working in you. And it's God's power also working for us. Listen to this promise that we find in Isaiah further on in chapter 40. Isaiah writes these words, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. And as you listen to the promise, maybe this is you today. You are weary. You're fried. You're worn out. Perhaps it took all that you really had, everything in you, just to get to be here this evening. You've got problems nobody understands and you can't really discuss. It's almost the end of the year and you've just had enough. There's no margin left. And yet the good news is that God gives strength and power to the weary. Could you imagine Jesus' power working for you? When I'm hurting, or when my motor skills are diminished, when it's hard to think clearly, when perspective fades, when I feel weak or anxious, God gives power and strength. His power is at work In our weaknesses, God is working for you. And we can discover, too, that God's power is working through us. I love these words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus tells his friends just before he leaves him, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it was on the day of Pentecost that Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit upon his friends and his followers upon his church, and they were empowered for the task ahead. God enables. And when we talk about joining Jesus in what he is doing at making all things new, we talk about it because God is working through us by his power. He doesn't just want us to know him and to live fully in a relationship with him. He doesn't just want us to grow into people who He's made us to be through the working of His Spirit within us. He doesn't just want us to be changed from being self-centered to other-centered, from being self-driven to being Holy Spirit-driven. God wants us to bear witness to and extend His kingdom and His hope and His love and provision and his justice here, there, everywhere where we find those needs. He wants us, in a sense, to be all in, all praying, all helping, all giving. He wants us our allegiance. He wants people to see Jesus in us. He wants to see his kingdom made visible in you, God's power working through you. Right after Matthew has this big quote from Isaiah, he figured out what Isaiah meant. Verse 17, he wrote, From that time, and Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What's the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's not in space somewhere. The other gospel writers actually preferred the phrase kingdom of God, interchangeable names. Saying heaven instead of God was a very Jewish thing to do. It avoided using the divine name in a sense, out of a sense of reverence and respect. And I think we need to clear our minds sometimes when we read Kingdom of Heaven in Matthew and think about going to heaven, where we all go when we die. But that's not what makes sense here. After all, he's just saying the kingdom of Niven has come near. It's not about heaven in that sense. It's not about the church either for that matter. I haven't heard anybody pray for the church to come anytime recently. But when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray for his kingdom to come and be seen with us, even those of us in church, so if it's not really about heaven and it's not really about church, what is it? The kingdom of God is really the place and the lives in which God reigns. It reveals itself as God begins to change lives and families and communities and cities and all sorts of places. It becomes evident. John Drain, a Bible scholar, puts it like this. He says, the kingdom of God, and a an little equal sign, the kingdom of God equals God's way of doing things. God's way of doing things. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven has come near. Kingdom is a word that is filled with power when you think about it. It's political, it's religious, it's relational, it's all-encompassing. He's saying the king has come near. He's come to rule and to reign. The mighty God, he has come near. Most often though, I would feel a little more comfortable just sort of saying, let your guidance come, Lord. Let your wisdom come, that's really cool. But kingdom has a whole lot more implications than all of that. It's like declaring God's kingdom, the sovereign rule of heaven, was approaching like an express train. And those who are standing idly by better watch out or they're going to get mowed down by the train. Kids in the street are always shouting, Car! Maybe we should run around shouting, Kingdom! Because God's kingdom means danger as well as hope. If justice and peace are on the way, then those who distort or twist justice and peace... They're in trouble. And they better get their act together in good time while there is time. And getting their act together has one word in the Bible. Repent. We see the mess all around us. Miscarriages of justice. Systemic racism and poverty and war and terrorism. Selfishness, sin. And Jesus is saying, time's up. Repent. The trouble with the word repent is, I'm not sure we always get the meaning Sometimes I think we just means feeling bad about ourselves and our choices and regretting it a little bit. That happens, but that's not what it means. It means change direction. It means turn around and go the other way. It means stop what you're doing and do the opposite instead. Turn around. Back in Jesus' time, when Israel was occupied by the Romans, there were all sorts of approaches to what life should look like in their politics. You'd snuggle up to the enemy and make the best of it. King Herod tried that. You could leave town and go into hiding the Essenes that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They tried that. I read this thing this weekend. It talked about the Essenes as being a doomsday apocalyptic vegetarian cult living in the desert. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's interesting. You could mind your own business and stay under the radar, or maybe you could start a revolution because that's what all the claimant messiahs used to try, a big fight. Jesus' message of repentance was not simply that we should feel sorry for our personal sins, though that does matter. But also it's a word to the nation, God's people of Israel, that they should stop rushing towards the cliff edge of a violent revolution. And instead to go towards God's kingdom of peace and light and healing and forgiveness. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That was his message. That in and through Jesus, God has opened a door, if you like, to the new world that is coming, and he's inviting all of us to walk through that door with Jesus. Have you ever done that? Have you ever entered the kingdom of heaven? Do you know how? One word. Repent. That's what Jesus said. You enter God's kingdom by responding to his kingly rule, by surrendering your life to the king. You become a part of the kingdom by acknowledging, submitting, giving your life to, coming in line with, aligning with his kingly rule and what he's doing in our world. We enter God's kingdom when we lay down our rights and surrender to the rightful king, when we willingly choose his rule over our lives. You really make no mistake about it. Jesus calls us all to repent to abandon our way of life, our value system and to let him rule to renounce our sin and turn in faith towards him because he made the first move and he came looking for us he's asking us would we offer our allegiance to him after all he is the mighty God so can I ask you have you done that? Have you abandoned your whole way of life and dared to trust this one who can still the waves and rebuke the evil? Have you given up the way you've chosen to go to turn around and follow his way even if it's hard, even if it's hurt, even if he doesn't fulfill all of your dreams and expectations of life? If you haven't, you're not sure. This is your moment to repent and enter God's kingdom. Do you pray with me? Father, today we recognize that we all make a journey in life and often get lost in the process. We're never quite sure which choice was the worst, but it's taken us somewhere we don't want to be. And yet thank you that in Jesus you've come looking for us and you're not far away. Thank you for his invitation and the opportunity he gives to us to repent. And that's the attitude and posture we take right now. We want to say sorry for the things that we've done wrong. And we could all make our big list of confession. But we know we need to do more than say sorry. We need to turn around. And that's hard. And so, Lord, we're praying that as you would forgive us for the things that we've done wrong, Would you also empower us that we could start to follow Jesus no matter how challenging that becomes? Because we want to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And some of us have been on that journey for a while and it hasn't gotten easier. And life is difficult. Sometimes the darkness feels like it's crushing us. Father, by your spirit, would you burst through that darkness into our lives and spark hope within us? And for those of us who've been struggling with all sorts of fears and pressures and things that weigh heavy upon us, we pray that Jesus, the mighty God, would come and break those things, break the chains, and set us free. And this year at Advent, as we're busily moving towards Christmas, we pray that you would grab hold of our lives and change us completely because we choose to say yes to King Jesus. He is the mighty God.